0: Let me ask you, you were here at the Global Forum on Nicotine, as we all are, you know, why is an event like this important? Well, I found these uh, meetings to be
1: incredibly important because you're bringing together people to have like truly rational discussions about this. There is, you know, none of the moralistic high ground stuff that I've experienced with a lot of anti-tobacco conferences now, where they really think that they're fighting sin. Or they think they're fighting big tobacco. And how do you fight big tobacco? You ban them from having any alternative to cigarettes because, well, cigarettes is where they make all their money and cigarettes is what they know how to do and cigarettes is what kills people, but why don't we make sure they keep selling cigarettes? Uh, I mean, you've got a whole lot of people who think they're fighting evil without taking the time to even understand what they think is the evil they're fighting and they end up doing things to protect
0: the very companies doing the very thing that upset us in, in the first place. You know, we've talked about this, you know, in our very first interview back in uh, 2015, you said it perfectly, it's dragon, dragon slayers. Yeah, right? they're
1: on a moral quest. They're on a moral and quest. And they don't have time to stop and to think or to question and they won't allow you to question them because they're doing God's work. And uh, and when you say things like, you, know, you realize that cigarette companies don't actually want to be doing these alternatives. You know, cigarettes are phenomenally profitable. They are phenomenally profitable to a large degree because anti-tobacco groups have done things to create a cartel for cigarettes without any control over them increasing their prices, which they do on a very regular basis. So it's the Warren Buffett line from years ago, tell you what I like about cigarettes, make them for a penny, sell them for a dollar, Uh, only they're selling them for way more than that now. and if you look at the, the profitability, the, the return on capital, the, the margins, the, the, the free cash flow of cigarette companies compared to any other consumer product company, I mean, it's completely different. I mean, the amount of money they make is incredible. Like people talk about things like, boy, wouldn't it be great to be Apple and have those sorts of profit margins? Well, Altria makes twice as much in their profit margins. You know, the uh, Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids says, you know, we spent the last 24 years leading the charge and beating up the cigarette companies and we're winning these wars. Well, you don't look at Securities and Exchange Commission filings on the profitability of Altria during that time. Beginning of that time, they were making $1.8 billion a year in the United States selling cigarettes. At the end of that 24 years, last year they made $10.9 billion selling cigarettes and tobacco-free kids said, look at this. And Brent, I think the takeaway message is we want tobacco-free kids to fight us. We want them to be our enemies because they're the sort of people who probably think they can piss you off by throwing bricks of gold onto your lawn so you can't cut your grass. You know, they're, just, they're doing these counterproductive things because they don't understand, don't wanna understand
0: who their supposed enemy is. Let me ask you about the U.S. just quickly because, I mean, the industry is decimated there and, and come July 15th, and this might air after July 15th, but all the synthetic nicotine products are supposed to be removed from the market. There really isn't the next step right there. Uh, what are your thoughts on I mean, what is going to happen to the millions of vapors right. that use it, rely on it, for nicotine in the United States? I, mean, I, I just um, had a piece published, I think it's coming out in a couple of days, in the
1: American Journal of Public Health on uh, what's happened. Uh, they, they had invited a commentary two years ago about what I thought was going to happen. It's happened. Uh, now they're publishing a commentary about you know what, what the impact of this is. It's incredibly counterproductive. It is no different than, you know, going back in time to say, what could you do in the beginning of the 1900s, where people are eating unsanitary food, but we knew it was technologically possible to have standards for sanitary food? You know, because what they did at the time say, let's give an advantage to the sanitary food, and out of that emerged a whole new industry manufacturing products that didn't make people sick. If you took the approach FDA did when they allowed Ulteri and Tobacco Free Kids to rate the law for tobacco, we would have gone back in time and said, I've got an idea. Let's grandfather all the unsanitary food and make sure that's available everywhere. But if somebody wants to bring out sanitary food, uh-uh, you know, we're gonna put huge barriers in the way. That's gonna be virtually impossible for them to do because we're really here to protect the public. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's hard to talk about this stuff without thinking I'm either in a Kafka play or a Monty Python skit because that's the sort of stuff that 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 we see happening. In terms of what will happen I'm I'm also oddly optimistic on this because if we look at markets they find ways around things like this and there was a wonderful book a a few years ago we've probably discussed before uh, by Downs and Noons called Big Bang Disruption saying technology change, disruption, it happens and the internet has sped that up by getting, getting people, being able to get more information more rapidly and share it with others. And their view was that you cannot stop innovation. You can slow it. Nothing slows it more than regulation. No form of regulation slows it more than health regulation. No form of health regulation can slow it as much as FDA regulation. And FDA regulation can't stop it. It's going to happen. So when you've got millions of people who say, I have found something that works for me, it's saving my life, I don't stink, I feel better, it's saving me money, do you think they're gonna say, well, if FDA doesn't want me to do it, I guess I just won't? Or are they gonna rebel against that? There's gonna be a further reduction in trust in government and they're gonna find alternative sources. And if nobody thinks they can find alternative sources, they need to also look at things like the US war on drugs because they did try that approach with marijuana. And you can see how effective that
0: was. Right, while they prefer their constituents stoned, that <laughs> seems to be where politicians are going. And, yeah, and again, the, uh, you know, just the
1: you know, seemingly irreconcilable <laughs> differences in the approach towards substances governed by the same bodies. Uh, so you know, why is it that in my neighborhood in Ottawa, I'm within an easy walking distance of at least 10 marijuana shops? Um, but the vape shops have been forced to close down because, you know, they, they can see, you know, how difficult it is to do. I mean, there is still one, but, but why, why would we do that when we're saying we don't have a lot of evidence that encouraging marijuana use is a good thing for health, but we do have a tremendous amount of evidence that tells us getting people who smoke cigarettes to switch to vaping, you know, is hugely important for them. Uh, so I think the consumers themselves will rebel just like they did in Canada prior to getting the, the, the vaping legislation where it was available everywhere. It's gonna to continue to be available everywhere. We're just gonna to go to more like the, the Mexican art, uh, view or what we see in India. Say, you know, ban it if you want, but people are still gonna use it. What are you gonna do? You're gonna arrest them all? And it becomes like the civil disobedience of the 1960s, 70s, where if, if you've got 500 people in the United States, you know, violating the law by getting vaping products, you can do something about it. If you've got five million, how many police officers do you have? How many prisons do you have? How much money are you willing to put into something like that? And why would you do that when you're trying to force them back to doing something that's likely to kill them? So I, I just don't think that this, this is sustainable. And I think that they're, the FDA talks about um, th- that they have enforcement discretion on these things. Will they exercise the discretion or will they allow them to be sold? Could you in good conscience as FDA officials say, I want you to go close down that shop, even though I know that shop is keeping people off cigarettes. And to the extent it keeps them off cigarettes, it's saving a lot of lives. And a lot of these people are low income and this is saving them money. Mm-hmm. So they, they can eat better. They can take better care of their kids. They can go visit grandma
0: because they can fill up the tank in their car. Right. The, and we're gonna close that down? Well, that's right. They are convinced that uh, that it's not saving lives. They are convinced that or they or they have convinced themselves that, and they've convinced the public that. and at some point, the lie becomes the truth. Mm-hmm. And there is no way around it. And it was whereas, you know, there may always be a chunk of the population of 10, 15% that say that there's this harm reduction thing and, and you know, safer nicotine products you know, are, are a good thing, but if 75, 85, 90% of the general public either don't care or feel strongly that it is um, a problem, I don't know if we can ever get over that. Totalitarian systems are built in order to prevent the disruption you're talking. Yeah, I mean,
1: uh, Rush is a really good example of that, or uh, Steve Bannon, the idea that you just show, throw out a tremendous amount of bullshit so that people are completely confused. Kakutani's book, The Death of Truth, sure. you know, where, where you, you destroy the belief in, in anything, where people don't know what, what to believe, they, they can go for anything. I think the counterpoint to that is that we have a long history of where 5 or 10% of the population can flip an election. Because if they believe strongly in an issue, they'll do something about it. You don't need 85% of the population to say, I'm really, really keen on giving viable, safer alternatives to people who'd otherwise smoke. If you had 5% of people who felt strongly about that, that's enough to flip elections. That's enough to to change what's going on. And that's what we did when we we pushed for non-smoker's rights, that you didn't need to get everybody. You need to get some opinion leaders. You need to get people who care. You need to get the people we're seeing here who are acting because they care. They care about their health. They care about the health of others. They've seen the facts. They're speaking out. It's very hard to hold that back, because unlike Putin's Russia, we don't have the ability to lock them all up for 15 years if they say something we don't like. You know, we still have some level of free speech. You know, I think it's really hard to contain this sort of stuff. So again, I'd go back to the the downs and noons. It's, It's new technology. There's truthful information. It is really hard to suppress that for a long period of time. You know, it will come out and good policy is contagious so how long before people in the United States start saying they did what in Japan so they've reduced sales like of cigarettes by half Mm -hmm. and they're already seeing these significant declines in disease rates associated with it and and we're seeing other countries doing the same thing I mean it becomes much harder to say let's do stupid when you see all these other countries who are doing sensible things and getting good results